BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm George Chen, and you're listening to SubDoc, a show where we talk about documentaries with guests from the worlds of comedy and film. On today's episode, I spoke with the director of Sex and Broadcasting, Tim K. Smith. Sex and Broadcasting is a 2014 film about New Jersey's long-standing freeform radio station, WFMU, and its struggles to stay afloat. Along the way, we encounter Tom Sharpling's best show, The Recession, competitive fundraising, and all manner of seat-of-the-pants media stunts by the singular Ken Friedman, who's made it his life's mission to keep WFMU on the air. You can find Sex and Broadcasting on Netflix, Canopy, and iTunes. It should be out on DVD in the spring, and it's also playing at the CU Sound International Music Film Festival this January in Turin, Italy. And now, here's my interview with Tim K. Smith. Um, Tim Smith, thank you for coming to my house. Oh, thank you, George. And you live in New York? I live in... Jersey. Uh, I live, no, I live, uh, I live in New York State proper. Mm-hmm. Um, I live in a place called Nyack, which is about 20 minutes from the George Washington Bridge. But I spend my days in New York City. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and you're out here doing family stuff? or I have family out here, and uh, I come out here also to meet with people in the business and do business stuff, mm-hmm. you know, about the future. And, uh, and I like any excuse to come out here and have a good drink. Yeah, yeah. And so what we're going to mostly be talking about today is sex and broadcasting, which you made... That's correct. You're the filmmaker. Uh, and there's going to be listeners that are familiar with WFMU and have a, are like probably a lot of best show fans out uh, in the podcast land. Sure. Uh, but for people that don't know WFMU, what's been your quick description to... Well, uh, the, the short and um, simplistic description is WFMU is an independent radio station out of Jersey City, New Jersey. Uh, that is America's longest-running freeform radio station. And so freeform being that um, they don't have one format, and the DJs, each DJ is responsible um, uh, for the curation and programming of their show. Uh, and it's run by a volunteer army of DJs. Um, and it gets no... And it's truly independent in the sense that it gets no underwriting, um, which is a coded way of saying advertising in the public radio sphere. And it gets no... Um, it has no strings attached money um, that it receives, and it really survives on this one uh, on-air fundraiser that happens once a year. Um, so it's uh, usually once a year. It's sort of do or die for this. Uh, uh, what is this little institution? But has uh, is really a, a cult has a cult-like following all over the world. So it's the kind of radio station that you would. You know, walk into Tokyo and uh, into a Tokyo, uh, you know, record store, and the shopkeep would be wearing a WFMU T-shirt, and they would be streaming WFMU over their ways. Or, you know, I get requests from 
oh, the film's going to screen in the Ukraine uh, or, you know, Macedonia or, you know, uh, uh, some of... So it, it has this incredibly unusual and passionate following um, uh, all over the world. And it is truly a, um, an unusual kind of programming that um, is both an expression of, of live radio, which is unusual um, today, and is also um, like these amazing archaeologists of, of the history of recorded sound mm-hmm. um, playing stuff that some days you'll be like, oh my God, where that, that was amazing. I heard this thing and I'd never heard anything like it. And then the other days, you know, five minutes later, you'll turn on, you know, they'll play something that just drives you insane. Mm-hmm. And you'll be like, oh my God, I, you know, I can't, I can't stand that radio station. Uh, I would say on top of that, they, um, uh, they have an, a, a very specific sense of humor about themselves. And um, so in all these moments of, programming pretension or program ridiculousness or prank radio um uh you have this place that um really can laugh at itself Mm -hmm. um and i think that's a really important distinction yeah i think this sense of humor definitely is captured in in the film uh and what you're saying about one scene i i would if i was going to describe this to someone one scene i always think of is them rolling in that uh, the giant like is it a wax cylinder player or like some kind of like mm-hmm. really old like recording device and then like mic micing up the horn yeah and then having the little like plastic tube mm-hmm. like one of these old Victrola type things well that was a wax cylinder it was, it was a wax yeah. cylinder player yeah and so they have a, an amazing show um, which where someone just plays old seventy eights and wax cylinder recordings. And which basically requires them to use these old hand crank machines and then put literally a microphone up to it to, yeah. to broadcast it. Um, uh, and it's, uh, it's a beautiful um, sight to see. Yeah. And of course, it's, um, it's an amazing sounds to hear. Yeah, like I'd never had thought about like the fact that something like that wouldn't have, it would need to be a studio treatment for the yeah. machinery itself, and not like these other, like a cassette deck or something. There's yeah. no XLR out. Yeah, there's no, there's no. No one has bothered to make that yet. Yeah. Um, USB. Yeah, I mean, I've heard like uh, people have been ripping 78s a lot. I've been seeing a lot of those. A lot things. of that. But um, yeah, it, the fact that it is live, and I think like it's interesting uh, that some, like say like for example, like Best Show ended up being a hugely massive popular thing that came out of WFMU. Tom Sharpling's show. Yeah, Tom Sharpling and John Worcester. And they are now only a podcast. Mm -hmm. And then there is a way that you lose that live thing that you can only have in radio. Well, I would say, yeah, that's that's true. So FMU, um, all of the shows, almost all of the shows, I should say, are live. Mm -hmm. Um, And they have almost no pre-recorded transitional pieces if someone's going to tell you about the programming coming up next you're listening to a dj tell you about that the person Uh, in the next room the person in the next room who's getting ready who you can hear rustling getting their stuff together and um i think when you first hear that you're like yeah so what who cares um there is this aspect to radio um that uh was very common which is that you you put radio on, you do other activities, uh, you, you know, you're driving in your car, you're washing the dishes. It's a companion medium. 
Mm-hmm. Um, it's something that you have with you. You very rarely sit in front of the radio and just watch the radio as it mm-hmm. does its thing. Live radio, on the other hand, has this added component um, that some DJs really um, exploit. Tom Sharpling, I think, did that the best. Um, certainly Ken Friedman and uh, his comedy show with Andy Breckman, uh, seven, seven, delay, seven Second Delay, also do some of that. But and that's the sense that you're listening to something live, and at any moment, you, you have no idea what's going to happen next. And mm-hmm. just the knowledge that this is, it's like watching a live event versus watching a film. You're sort of like, okay, I'm watching a film. It, it, it won't go off the rails at any moment. Mm-hmm. Well, it feels like something could go off the rails at any moment. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I love that. I think that's something that we should hold on to. I think it's um, it's a little bit like theater, um, and um, and I love the fact that when I'm listening to someone like Tom, I am listening to somebody in the same moment that I am having all kinds of feelings, whims. Uh, suddenly turning on his audience. Uh, suddenly uh, turning on himself uh, in a you know, drowning himself in self-doubt, then then rallying uh, in a, you know, just in a, he's going to fight the world and uh, you're going to come with him mm-hmm. and then we're going to lead into some Led Zeppelin and we'll, we'll yeah. end it. So, um, yeah, live radio. Yeah. Now, um, are you, I'm thinking you're, are you and I may be around the same generation in terms of, we were listening to a lot of radio before internet stuff. Like, you oh, could yeah. only find out about a lot of weird music in the 80s and 90s through college radio. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, did you have an involvement or how did you come to FMU specifically or did you have an involvement in college radio in general? So I moved to New York City in 1989. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a different world. Um, you know, certainly there was no internet. Um, I had, you know, as a high schooler, that was the way I found out about new music was two, two sources. One is you found college radio stations and... You know, you'd start to listen to certain shows, and you would sit. You'd have a piece of paper often near your radio, so you yeah. could write down. That was what Shazam. Was, <laughs> that was that. What was that? What was that band? Yeah, I got to know that song. Where did you grow up? Um, so I went to high school in the Boston area. Um, so uh, WZ- Record Hospital, yeah. Uh, WZBC mm-hmm. and Newberry Comics, yeah, and um, it was a pretty rich time for music in the eighties in, in Boston, you know, oh, yeah. college. Yeah, for sure. You yeah. know, I was a big, uh, Pixies and throwing muses fan. And, um, did you have a fake ID? You're getting out of these shows. I, you know, they had a pretty healthy, like all ages oh, they did. experience. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, one of the, I was very lucky. Now we're getting really off, off into, there's only a few of you that will, um, that will understand these yeah. references, but I it's like our demographic average yeah. demographic is in their late thirties, yeah. I think. Yeah. At this point. So, uh, you know, one of the first shows I saw, you know, when I was in eighth grade, was I went to got, I'd go see the Minutemen play at the, okay. at the Rat. So that must have been 83, 84? Yeah, it was for their yeah. last tour. Oh, okay. So yeah, well, it was for, uh, yeah. uh, it was for the Mersh, Mersh, Mersh. Yeah, post pro, 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 Project yeah. Mersh. Yeah, yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I was very lucky. So when I came, yeah. to get back to FMU, you know, when I, when I came to New York for college... Mm-hmm. And I got my little apartment, and the first thing I did was I said I got my radio, and then you just so for people that didn't grow up listening to radio, um, 
you know, the dial is sort of split in yeah. in in uh, it's like one third and is the is the public radio sphere. And what what does that mean? Well, the FCC, this government agency, basically says all this part of the the, the broadcast spectrum is for public radio stations or nonprofit or things that serve the public good. That's mm -hmm. why, you know, when you're listening, you know, your parents' NPR station, it's always down there at the bottom. Mm -hmm. And then the hot 97s and the, you know... 10, 10, 10 whatever. 10, whatever, Exactly. Yeah. Um, is all there up at the top, the 100s yeah. and all that. So, and that placement mattered a lot back then, yeah. Like, yeah. Like, yeah, because if you had, like... I worked at a station that was a 103. It was a Santa Clara University. And it was like, that seems, like, pretty central for a college station amazing maybe the fact that it was a catholic school had something to do with it i don't know oh no professional welder shana ford used vr training developed by forge fx to hone her skills as a welder the more time that you spend practicing it that's what separates a good welder from a great welder vr training can help students like shana repeatedly practice specific skills Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Yeah. I'm sure that that got them some real money yeah. in the Clear Channel era when they probably sold that bandwidth. But. I think they're still there, though. But yeah, like a lot of the – most college stations you'll find are in the 80s and the early 90s, basically, yeah. yeah. So I get to uh, in New York. I get my radio out. I go down to the bottom of the dial. I'm trying to find some stations. New York City actually is a really – I don't want to say it's a lousy place for radio, but the combination of – um, the high price of real estate right. and the combination of all that architecture makes radio signals really, they just don't travel well. Mm -hmm. And so um, there weren't a ton of great radio stations. And then I, one day I find this, I have my radio in one part of the room and I find this, I was like, oh, I, that's some great music. I'm going to leave my radio, radio right there. It seems to be in in tune if they come back there. I came back, you know, an hour later, turn it on. The music was so different. And I was like, this is not the same radio station I was listening to. And I had no idea what the, you know, the call letters were. And and it just went on like that for about six months until finally I was like, oh, this is this <laughs> one radio station. It's called WFMU. And one day you're going to turn it on and be like, this is amazing. And the other day you're going to be like, what is this? Why I'm being tortured. Um, and uh, it was a pretty magical thing. So I really came to FMU as a fan, a fanatic, um, and you know it, which can be a, a really good thing as a filmmaker. It can propel mm -hmm. you, but it can also be um, you. You eventually have to get beyond that if you're going to mm -hmm. say anything of significance about this place or institution or person. <laughs> And we're live at WFMU in Jersey City, New Jersey. Glenn Jones, a DJ, about to break the record for the longest radio broadcast ever. I think he's doing remarkably well, considering he's been on the air for 97 hours. Four, Bring the title back to America. I guarantee you, I don't care where you grew up, what culture you subscribe to, you're going to hear something that you like. I mean, eventually. So let's get into a little bit like, yeah, what is your film background before this, this all came about? Uh, well, I went to, I went to NYU and, and, um, 
you know, graduated and then became an immediate success. <laughs> <laughs> that happens all the time, I hear. Yeah, it's amazing yeah. how that happens, and that was me. Um, so go to film school, everybody. Yeah. Um, I came out of NYU, and oddly enough, I uh, just because of some background, I I had I'd been PAing all through college, and I by the time I left college, uh, I was you know I I had was doing a lot. Uh, art direction and prop i was a prop master oddly enough Mm -hmm. um this was not necessarily my uh forte it was just something i could make a living at and it was probably a a a wonderful um Mm -hmm. diversion for a brief period of years but it allowed me to pay my rent and i had some great experiences and um and then eventually um as i was trying to continue to try to do just some direct some stuff i eventually became an editor Mm-hmm. And um, and then I think that's where my life really begins in the documentary world. Um, I got very lucky and um, collaborated um, with a guy by the name of uh, Matthew Galkin, who uh, we made two films together. Uh, one which I edited was called I'm an Animal, which was for HBO, which was about um, Ingrid Newkirk, who started PETA, um, which is really a portrait of a of a fanatic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it's sort of the question of like, is this a, um, is this person um, a crack pot, pot or a visionary? Um, and uh, and then I made another film with him, which I co-produced and edited, which was uh, about Jack Kevorkian. Okay. Um, for uh, for HBO called Kevorkian, and um, again, you know, the questions of sort of crack pot or or visionary yeah. come in, in into play. And funny enough, in some ways, you could say the same about FMU. Right. Um, the leadership, yeah, and the, the sort of, yeah, the visionary. Yeah. Aspect, yeah. yeah, actually, I think uh, Ken would be smiling right now if I... <laughs> Comparing to if I, well, if I, <laughs> well, and also if I had said, you know, you are either a crackpot or a visionary, right. he'd be like, yes. Yeah. Um, so... Uh, so, yeah, so you... Uh, when did you start thinking about doing this project? Right after Kevorkian, mm-hmm. and it was, it, this film took an enormous am- amount of time, and mm-hmm. there's some benefits to that. Um, uh, but it was the struggle of a person who is trying to make a living. Uh, I support a family. Um, you know, at the time, it was. 2009 when I first started shooting so a long time ago yeah and I noticed there's like a lot of yeah there's a lot of time jumps in there but I mean it does follow a chronology up through um up through uh, the end up through the end yes but I I noticed that yeah it seemed like a lot of yeah a lot of time that yeah you were, you were shooting different yeah areas. I um I you know for anybody who's a filmmaker who's listening to this you know it came at a time um, I had a young daughter and she was at an age where I was like, okay, she doesn't need me quite as much anymore. I can now start making a film. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, FMU was in some ways a perfect subject cause I didn't need a large crew. I would go with, I would shoot, I shot the film 90% of it. I shot myself and, um, uh, and you know, I could just go down to the station and hang out. Yeah. Um, and that, that worked for a lot of it. And, um, and then I came to a place where I was like, oh, I need to take this to the finish line. And that is, um, you know, I see a lot of films as an editor of films. I'm, you know, I, I see a lot of people struggle. It's very, I, I would say it's very easy to start a documentary. 
it's very hard to finish a documentary. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I um, I eventually um, started Kickstarter and um, was relatively successful, and that enabled me to finish the film. Um, you know, in 2009, the great, the big story, of course, was going on was there was a financial crisis, right? And I hadn't really anticipated that that would be that would play a part in the story, but it certainly didn't hurt mm-hmm. to have this thing that is always on the edge of failure now having an additional um, uh, crisis that it was facing. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah, I I, I do like uh, the way you structured. Like there is a couple of natural tensions and dramas that happen, which is yeah, a lot of it have to do with the fundraising. Uh, some of it has to do with Ken himself and the sort of like personality struggles he has with different people uh, in his uh, in his quixotic attempt to <laughs> keep this thing afloat. Um, yeah. yeah, so yeah, the financial crisis is one part of it. Um, even... I, I like I, that some of the background stuff I wanted to know you addressed kind of in the the back end of the movie, mm-hmm. like kind of like the beginning. Yeah, very of like late with, with Uppsala and um, even the title Sex and Broadcasting, which uh, for those who don't know that that is like the that's a line from the manual that he looked at, or the title of the manual. That's the title at? of a manual. manual. So there yeah. was a I want to say no, no, I'm forgetting, but but nineteen seventies, late yeah. late sixties, uh, early seventies. Um, community radio uh, station uh, starters kit, if you will. It was a book um, written by a guy named Lorenzo Milan, who was really Johnny Appleseed of community radio station. And if you go up all up and down the West Coast, almost, you know, he's responsible for a dozen radio stations. Uh, and he wrote this sort of gonzo uh, book called Sex and Broadcasting. Uh, that Ken Friedman ran, uh, read when he was in college doing radio. Mm-hmm. And he, in a weird way, when you just pick up that book and start to flip through it, you're like, oh, that, energetically, that's FMU. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's funny, it's irreverent. It, um, it is about how do you survive a- another day to enjoy the chaos of having this odd community... Um, and and do do crazy radio. Yeah, well, I mean that's that's interesting to th- think of like the whole seed of the thing having to do with that era of counterculture, like the '60s counterculture, mm-hmm. and how basically if you I, you kind of think of what they're doing as continuing the spirit of the '60s counterculture, and mm-hmm. it's gone through punk, it's gone through all these other eras, mm-hmm. but essentially that kind of freedom is goes back to that origin. Yeah, I would say that Ken and and even Sex and Broadcasting, uh, Lorenzo's book, uh, were both sort of counterculture hippie energy and also counter-counterculture. Right, because it's both, yeah. Yeah. You know, Ken would describe himself as a benevolent dictator. Mm-hmm. He will tell you that great community radio stations die because there's too much democracy. Um you know, if you, some people would be like, what? That's crazy. Um, but, you know, uh, we've, we had some great radio stations in the New York area. WBAI is certainly one of them. Um, and there became a kind of balkanization within the organization of, you know, radio programs that would never go away. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, warring 
ethnic groups within them trying to hold off their turf and um, and and just programming that over time uh, was about representation and not about necessarily great r- radio. Mm-hmm. I think that's a you know that's a hard needle to uh, to you know to thread there mm-hmm. in terms of well how do we how do we have community radio station that represents the community yeah <laughs> and um, uh, but I think Ken has been steadfast in trying to make radio that probably reflects a lot of his sensibilities, but is also just uh, surprising. And he just, just kind of doesn't care where it comes from. Mm-hmm. Um, they have this one uh, rule, which is that anybody can be taken off the air, and they will be. You know, uh, people will sit out. People who have been around forever will sit out. You know, six months. Uh, you know, and and not have a show for a while. Well, that's one. Well, one thing I learned from this that I didn't know anything about was that there is this whole Jewish morning show. Then that's like talking about a balkanized sub community. Like I had no idea that that was part of FMU. Yeah. So and that uh, seems like a really huge part of it. It. Uh, well, it's funny you should ask. I yeah. mean, ask uh, talk about that because so FMU before Ken Friedman ever. Uh, took over as station manager before they ever bought the license from um, Uppsala Uppsala College. Um, There was, there's been a show called Jam in the AM, which is called Jewish music in the AM. Mm -hmm. And um, this uh, is a show, very conservative Jewish show. Um, They play a lot of Jewish music. I think pre-internet that you probably, if you were uh, Orthodox Jew living in northern New Jersey, you couldn't find anywhere else, and you were longing for community. And um, they had been there forever. And when I think Ken made a very practical decision to just keep JM the AM on, they were they had a big fundraising chunk um, of money that they seemed to to make every year, um, and um, and also. Uh, yeah, it, so it, it, it was, it is, um, it, it was unusual, but it was a happy, tolerant marriage. Um, and, uh, but yeah, Jam and AM is, <laughs> I don't think there's, as Ken would say, there would be very little crossover in terms mm-hmm. of listenership. Jam and AM went off the air this, this oh, year. Okay. So this year's fundraiser was the first fundraiser that they've ever had where, you know, they would. Uh, they had to do it without Jam and Am. Did the guys just retired, or they? I have chose a. To do uh, else I mean, or? I had been hearing at the time mm-hmm. their fundraising had gone down more and more. Mm-hmm. Um, some of Jam and Am would actually. Uh, Nakam Siegel, who's uh, the DJ for that show, he made a small salary from that show. He was one of the only paid DJs. But again, because he had been on forever, and they were almost like a station within. within a, yeah, within it seemed a like they were an island. Yeah, and. But I think the internet really changed everything. They were now competing with, you could just listen to Israel. You know, there's a ton of programming in Israel you could listen to every day if you want. Mm -hmm. You could listen to, um, yeah, there's just a lot more to compete with. Uh, FMU itself has been incredible at capitalizing on the benefits of the internet. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think Nakam, Nakam did not necessarily survive that Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So, so this is the first year fundraising without them. And what you're saying, yeah, about there was two things that I know about that didn't really get touched on here. I think maybe they were just developing around 2011 mm-hmm. or 12, which was the Free Music Archive, and then a WFMU Beware the Blog, which is amazing. I mean, I could I could say uh, those are two amazing things. I, you know, when I this is, has to do with my personal approach to making a documentary. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I want to tell a story. I'm a, I'm a storyteller. I want to tell a story, and I want there to be a cohesive point of view. Um, FMU not only has uh, the Free Music Archive, which is this amazing uh, institution that they created, se- sort of separate within FMU, which is this as like a nonprofit. I as think, a right? nonprofit, yeah. they actually got it as a part of the. There was a Paola lawsuit oh. uh, in New York. And they were okay. able to basically get this massive Funds grant to start it. Okay. And, um, but. Oh yeah, no, I wasn't saying that you needed. Oh to cover no, no, them. no, not at all. Saying, but yeah, I think it's actually uh, about how they've adapted to this environment. Yeah, how no, they're very uh, tech savvy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, I'm more making the point mm-hmm. that um, their FMU is so rich, mm-hmm. and it has, you know. I never talk about Brian Turner in the film. I was gonna, that was one of my major questions because yeah. he's the guy I mostly know of because I've come at it from the music side from being yeah. working at record labels. So I've been always been sending packages to Brian for forever know, since the 90s. Yeah. yeah. So Brian Turner is the technically the program director there. He what does that mean at a place like FMU where each DJ gets to play whatever they want? It means that basically he curates the new bin of everything that comes into FMU. He's yeah. he's the first years that really help FMU DJs just get through this massive mm-hmm. amounts of recorded music that is coming yeah. to the station. And day. as opposed to like often with college stations, you get someone who's only going to be around for two or three years because they're like by nature graduating. Yeah. There's people at FMU that have been there for oh yeah since the 80s well people have been there before yeah. uh ken you know uh-huh. there's another perfect example uh you know erwin chusid right right uh, he, he was like a huge uh he's known for documenting weird music and he's got books about weird music like stra- uh, incredibly strange music yeah right? incredibly yeah. strange music um stuff that we uh would find kind of i don't want to say ordinary today but at the well, internet yeah. has changed things yeah. in the sense that you know these DJs, you know, right now I look at them as as these amazing archaeologists and curators of sound, and they help to kind of take what is out there and bring it down and 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 selectively make better choices for you. Mm-hmm. There was also a time when the things that they were playing you could not find anywhere else. Right, there was no place to search online and say, "Oh my God, I heard this guy who plays." You know yeah. his forehead, right? And, like, you know people like Moon Dog or the Shags. You probably would not right. hear outside of like Irwin like explaining break it to you. the Shags. Yeah. Yeah. So Irwin um, and Irwin's story pre uh, Ken uh, FMU in the '60s had been a freeform radio station at Uppsala College in New Jersey, um, and then the. Uh, uh, the school shut the radio station down, uh, partly because of it was getting too wild. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, Irwin, if Irwin was here, he'd tell the story better. But Irwin really was the person that brought Freeform back at FMU 
in the 70s mm-hmm. and was the thing that Ken heard that said, okay, now I got to come and help not only do this, but make this yeah. like a, in it, he, you know, he's responsible in some ways for carrying that flag from the previous generation of people that had been FMU DJs there and making it, you know, mm-hmm. what it was. And he was there with, you know, our Stevie Moore and, and, um, and the making, yeah, yeah, making really unusual radio station, uh, uh, radio programming. That, so, yeah, there's another question I had is, did you sit down with R. Stevie Moore? I feel like he'd be a tough interview. I don't know a lot about him. You know, but. part of it was um, the during the period that I was shooting, uh, the short is, no, I did not mm-hmm. sit down with him. I did get some amazing uh, tapes of his. He, you know, he did an incredible amount of, of self-documenting. I mean, his recordings, his musical recordings, obviously, are that. But he had a video camera, and he would just bring it down to the station. And yeah, you, some of that footage was the first I even realized that he had been part of that era. Yeah, so he that. would just film himself doing He did a show with this guy, the Vanilla Bean, and they just did really uh, wonderful live, you know, unusual radio theater uh, that just was always moving in unpredictable ways. So he was, you know, he was amazing. Those, uh, so getting back to that, yeah, I, in some ways it was just like, where do you, what, what, what are the few things I'm going to focus on? Mm-hmm. And kind of a knowledge like, uh, you know, I'm going to make a lot of mistakes or I'm going to, I'm going to piss well, off no a way. lot. There's, My mistakes is the wrong. I'm going to piss yeah. off somebody. There's no yeah. way to do, and I mean, unless you were to do it as like, even if you did a multi-part series, it's like, this is a place that's been churning content nonstop <laughs> since the 70s, 60s. <laughs> yeah. So there's no way you're going to cover everything. Um, I did watch this one with my girlfriend who also had done college radio in New Jersey. Yeah. She went to Patterson yeah. and she had done college radio at Patterson Station. So she sort of, at one point we kind of stopped watching it because I was enjoying this from my perspective of like being a fan of college radio, being mm-hmm. a fan of the film. And she was like, I feel like there was not a representation if I were just to watch this, and as someone who is a woman who did college radio or did independent radio, right. I feel like there is like a lack of representation of women, and that really uh, struck me. And actually, that's like why I wrote on Facebook, and you got in touch with me regarding that. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I think that touches on what we're talking about here. Like, there are by by nature of your editing, you're gonna leave some things out. Were there more like female characters that could have been included, or, or what I, do you think? I spent. In Nor- well, there's a, there's a bunch of things to talk about. Right, One is, there, right? is um, uh, you know, I I spent a lot of time shooting with a lot of people at FMU. Mm-hmm. Um, when I first got there, I had no sense that I was going to focus on Ken Friedman. I, um, you know, I thought, I think I thought about it in a more abstract way. I was like, this will be a series of portraits and... We'll just follow them for a whole year, and we'll start with one fundraiser and end with another. And it, it will within that, it'll we'll just meet these unusual human beings. Um, you know, radio is not a great medium. You know, it's not a great subject for film. Right. Um, it, <laughs> That's a good yeah, right. <laughs> you know, ninety exactly. percent of it is, and I found it very quickly. I was like, I go down the station. I was gonna yeah. film with my favorite DJ, and I'm like, oh, I'm gonna film them. Getting records out, yeah. putting records on. They're gonna do sound break, you know, little musical breaks, and to, to backtrack the the music. Maybe have a little banter. 
Um, maybe say something personal, maybe not. Um, and do that for three hours. Um, it is, uh, it is really not a great, um, it's not, particularly if you're trying to tell a story with, you know, mostly verite footage, um, it's, it's not, it's not great. And I learned that very quickly. I had, and then I would get very easily distracted by, um, and I'm telling this, you know, as a filmmaker, I was, I was so smart before I started making this film. <laughs> I was an editor. So I was always taking people's footage and saying, okay, now this is, has to go away and this has to go away. Uh-huh. And we're just going to focus on this. And here's your story. And it's not the thing that you dreamed of, but it's going to be so much better. And it's going to be like this. And yes, that you're going to piss off that person. And that's okay because we're telling, we're telling a real story and it's truthful and, and we, and, and we're going to be proud. Mm-hmm. Um, very early on, I just got to this point where I was like, oh, uh, I'm just going to keep shooting people. Because A, I was addicted to just being around FMU because I just love it. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to go hang out with DJ Trouble. You know, mm-hmm. um, very early on, I, uh, I met a very young DJ. Uh, she was 16. She was on the air there. Very unusual. And um, she was suffering from uh, an, uh, a some kind of um, immune uh, illness. And so I thought, oh, well, that's, that sounds dramatic to me. And maybe it'll be really about how FMU is, helps her get through the day. And da, da, da. You know, you're trying to kind of connect the dots. Okay, that sounds dramatic. And movies are supposed to be dramatic and about people struggling with something. Well, you know, you shoot someone for, you know, 100 hours. And you realize that's a whole nother movie. That's just a movie about a young girl who's doing a thing Uh and who's struggling with something. And you have to go, I'm not making that movie. I'm trying to talk about the spirit of this place. Mm -hmm. Now, I will tell you, when I saw your note on Facebook, Mm -hmm. it plays right into the fact that, you know, I look back and I, um, you know, the limits of of making a a relatively low-budget documentary, I I carry around a lot of, uh, not guilt, but you know, not even I regret, but just this feeling of like, well, you know, God, I should have found a way to work Brian Turner in, you know, I, that, that feels, you know, mm-hmm. he's a big, he's a, he has an enormous amount of influence on how that place sounds and for a long time. Yeah. And he's like the guy that I always associate. I didn't right. know who Ken was. I associated that place with him. Right. In my so, mind. Yeah. So then, then you get into well, what's going on right now? What is what? Are, what's the story that I am trying to tell? Well, eventually, the story that I was trying to tell is, FMU is a place that should not exist. <laughs> right. And what I mean by that is, it is a place that, by the rules of our society, capitalism, yeah, yeah. capitalism, <laughs> or even just sort of pseudo, um, you know, non for profity story, it still shouldn't exist. They nope. just keep moving in the if there's a way they could make their lives easier, they will not do it. They just keep not doing the things. And if it weren't, and I was like, well, why is that? Who keeps it going like that? Why, what is it that is the fanatic, like, view of it? Obviously, everyone is sort of on board with this, mm-hmm. but it kind of takes a crazy person to say, no, we're just going to keep doing this way, even though every year this causes 
me incredible stress. Every year we have to worry that our dream will die. Now we've all known a great cultural institution, we've always known a great club, an amazing zine or magazine or record label, and then and they they come they sort of like arc and then they sort of like die off. And yep. and in the best situation they they become a a kind of a museum version of themselves. Mm-hmm. Um. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. I very quickly realized, okay, as much as I really didn't want to make a film about one of these people, I very quickly realized Ken Friedman is the person that A said, we're going to buy this station from this Bankrupt, bankrupt yeah. <laughs> uh, college. Yeah, we are going to find a way to fight for it to be unlike anything else that exists. Every year when we have a struggle and we could just take some money or we could do what other people do or join NPR or whatever, he resists every month. And there are the I don't I don't tell all of the years of the uh you know so many there was a story we had in the film very late that it was about two npr actually i think it turned into three npr stations that were suing fmu in their early years because there was a typo on the fmu fcc license that would have allowed them to cut the power of their very small antenna uh-huh. down to nothing mm-hmm. and that would have allowed them to expand their signal mm-hmm. it's a great story um i could just you know you could just go on we could be if i were filming right now i would be telling the story of jm and the am leaving mm-hmm. fmu yeah and them now having to go it alone if i had been shooting all the way through tom sharplin leaving yeah i would have although that's certainly a theme of this film i would have done that mm-hmm. also so it uh, when I look back, I have um, I shot with so many DJs. I remember uh, Lizberg, who mm-hmm. is the assistant um, station manager, and in many ways is sort of the the, the engine that keeps the lights on, and mm-hmm. is not necessarily the fanatic that keeps everyone into this place of okay, but this is how we're going to do it no matter what, and that's just the way it is. You know. I look back and I go, Lisberg should have been in this film more. And I, so I, I, when I saw that comment on Facebook, oh, you know, they're, you didn't represent women better. It was very personal to me in the sense that, yeah, I kind of, there are a lot of hard decisions that I made. And, um, and some of them, I think, well, if I had had four more weeks, um, Mm-hmm. I would have done better. We had, well, you had interviews with those people, right? Yeah, some I of imagine them. you. I imagine there were people that were. You have the footage, and there's oh, maybe yeah. some people that were like, "Actually, I don't want to be in it." I imagine you had a few. There's of those. some of those. There's yeah. a little bit of that. There's more of. I can remember Lisberg saying to me, "I don't think I want to be in this film because I'm just too damn boring." And <laughs> you know, she was sort of joking, um, but in many ways, the real struggle at that time was, um, in my mind. 
and the thing that resonated with me was who keeps this crazy place alive? And then how, if you are a success at this place, how do you keep doing it when you put in so much and you get, you know, you get nothing in what we see as our society back. You get no monetary way of, you know, Tom Sharpling built one of the most amazing shows on WFMU, an incredible podcast uh, at FMU through this show, a, a live radio event that happened every Tuesday night with John Worcester, who these they did something amazing with live radio. They have amazing people come to them. They had giants of alt comedy coming on, Patton Oswalt coming on. Mm-hmm. People, yeah, you had Paul Tompkins and John Hodgman yeah. in that in that oh, show. In the, you're in the it, room with them when oh, yeah, you yeah, shot that. Yeah. yeah. Um, they they were fantastic. Um, he did something amazing, and he raised enormous amounts of money. Um, and that's like one of the most uh, you know dramatic moments in the film. Yeah, yeah. They're really facing you know crisis, and there's someone like Tom Sharpling who is giving more than a lot of people give to their full time jobs. Way more. Mm-hmm. He this is a passion for him. He is killing it every time. And, um, and you feel at some point, well, what do you do? What does someone do with that? Mm-hmm. Um, and there had been, the, you know, you go back, you go, like, oh, well, here's a guy who, who did that before. The Hound. He was the first Tom Sharpling. Mm-hmm. The so first, then like, you, star to come out Yeah, there, the yeah. star. Now, you know, if I were going to be honest, you know, my fra- favorite, um, you know, I have a, a lot of different favorite DJs. A lot of them aren't in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, because it doesn't, it it didn't speak to anything. It was it didn't speak to these themes, and that's that's ultimately the choice that I made. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of DJs that come in. They love FMU. They do decent fundraising. They come in once a week. They have some records that they picked out over the the week. They play them on the air for an hour, maybe three hours tops, and then they're done. That's that is uh, that was not the story that I wanted to tell. Yeah. Those well, are like, yeah, yeah, even like Adam Horowitz like is yeah. like, "Hey, let me do this." And they're like, "Yeah, you just you're going to have to do all the shit work that a shit worker at a station has to do." And it's like now there's things like uh Apple yeah. Beats and like Spotify where they would yeah. like, they would be killing to have Adam Horowitz like doing uh, a radio show for them and like if I could have just been like Oh yeah, this will bring in like a huge following, but they're just like, no, you got to play by the rules. It's kind of yeah, like, they, they were. It's kind of like a hilarious scene. Like in like ten minutes, in, I'm like, oh god, they just totally let that fall. <laughs> they let that go ground. away. But in a weird way, I mean, I think it could. It had to live in that. It has. It has to. Yeah. Live in that realm of. Of like, okay, yeah, we're not going to be the people that are just like, oh, you mean there's somebody who's a celebrity that wants to come in and do a radio show? Yeah. Um, even though, you know, Avrock has great taste and he would do, he would kill it. You know, mm-hmm. he would be amazing. He's um, not going to go answer phones and open mail. No. At like 2 a.m. <laughs> no, no, he's not. No. People who are discovering WFMU, they want to know what it's about. I say, tune it in. If you don't like what you hear, turn it off, come back an hour later. When you go away. And you may like what you hear. And then five minutes later, we'll drive you away again. 
Well, okay, so do you now? I feel like a lot of the beef between the Hound, who like, yeah. So if we go into the Hound, he had like the first kind of like, like he introduced people like Hazel Adkins and that whole genre. He was oh, kind of yeah. basically a guy who brought that to the airwaves in the seventies, Absol- absolutely, and uh, really in the eighties. So in ca- 80s, he's yeah. kind of does he predate Ken or he's a little bit more contemporary? No, no, Ken, he he, he brought he brought Ken. He I brought mean, Ken in. I mean, I'm sorry, Ken brought Ken that, brought him brought in. Jim Marshall in, yeah, uh-huh. and. um and there's a little beef between those guys, it seems like. Oh, yeah. 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 And that's documented in there. Was there stuff that you cut out uh, from those talks that was, like, more personal? Or was it, like, it was just mostly, like, he just felt like he no, got... No, I, th- I think we, we properly represented that mm-hmm. relationship. Um, you know, uh, yeah, the Hound, I think he loved his status as a guy who got kicked off of FMU. <laughs> He right. likes his outlaw status as a guy. He's banned. I'm yeah. banned from FMU. Okay. Yeah. Um, and you know he did an amazing show. Yeah. Uh, really, really great. Um, cool, cool music. What is your relationship with Ken like? That's what I'm wondering because it seems like as this thing went on, you started to focus more on him. Yeah. And that wasn't initially your plan, like you said. Yeah. What is your personal relationship with him like? Um, it's very good. I mean, I, in the sense that Ken um, was, I think, for very early on, very open. He wanted, he wanted it to, I think his biggest fear was that someone would bother to make this documentary and it would be boring. Um, and there had been for years people trying to make an FMV documentary. Okay. So when I first came, there, Ken was very smart in the sense that he, everybody who had come along and had tried and shot for a couple of years. He he basically said, "Okay, if you're not going to finish, you have to give me your footage." And so I inherited oh, okay. hundreds of hours of stuff. Wow. Okay. So some of that stuff is stuff that other people had shot yeah. for abandoned projects. Yeah. Oh, okay. Interesting. So yeah, that when you see like, oh, I'm looking at you know DV footage of Joanna Newsom. I that wasn't me. Yeah. Um, uh, and. Uh, but there's some amazing pieces of footage in there, yeah. um, and I'm incredibly grateful. You know, look, when the film was just about to come out, um, I think Ken was um, understandably panicked about the release of the film. About how it made him look? Or um, about how... I think, I think, you know, FMU is this incredibly... It's like... You know, it's a in a weird way. It's a brand. You know. Yeah, it is. It, yeah. You know, it's a. It, I hate to put it in those terms. It's there's probably a better way outside of this culture to talk about it. But it's something. It's it, like a lodestone for a lot of people, like in in this in the subcultures. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, it's sort of like a secret handshake when you see somebody with an FMU T-shirt oh, yeah. on. You're I like, see oh. bumper stickers on Los yeah. Feliz all the time. Yeah. yeah. You're like, oh, I know who you are. Yeah. You know, um, and so in that sense, I think. Um, I think he worried at moments like, "Oh, he's gonna f- he, uh, he's gonna screw this up," you know, like about you. Yeah, that like, like, like he like, put his all trust in you to do- to be. Yeah, he had, he had seen that when the first time he saw the film. I think his first reaction was like, "Oh my god, 
I'm, it's not boring. Uh, that was it. Oh, it's not boring. <laughs> and then later on, it was like, oh, may, I think, you know, self-doubt and fear. And is this going to suddenly go out to the world? And then once it suddenly went out to the world, then, the, you know, the load came off. Oh, you know, any, any normal human being, A, is going to have a lot of apprehension about having a film made about them. Mm-hmm. And in addition to that, I think he, um, yeah. He wasn't so sure. He just wanted to make sure we didn't destroy that beautiful, precious thing Mm -hmm. um, out in the world. Well, I know like sometimes when people make a documentary about someone, then that person ends up being kind of like a co-producer or they kind of like, or in the case of like someone's like, oh, I get the, like their life rights or something like that. In this case, it's the life rights of an institution. So it's not like exactly one person. I had no no agreement on that front with them. And... Um, I challenged the world to make a narrative feature about WFMU. Um, although, you know, that would be a, be- a beautiful thing. Yeah. Uh, but, um, yes, I think, uh, to, to Ken's credit, he had an open door always. He made it so that other people, you know, and FMU is a paranoid, you know, it's full of paranoid people. It's a group of DJs. DJs don't like to talk to other human beings. They want to. They just want to sit in front of a microphone in a room by themselves yeah. and talk and be listened to. Um, on some way, that's ideal. But the idea of actually having someone there and having a camera. Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. I'm it, picture trying to picture it like some of these like uh, like the Sue Braun. She's like, I don't like these fundraisers because I don't like this idea of forced fun. Yeah. That's a good quote. Um, but yeah, like yeah, these tend to be Malcontents. antisocial people. And like yeah, yeah you're sitting there. And they probably don't want to talk to you yeah. in between playing songs, and you're sitting there for like yeah for like years trying to get yeah. out of them. I'm like, come on, please. Yeah. And Ken, you know, vouched for me, and um, in that sense, I'm incredibly grateful. Mm-hmm. Um, and he never asked me to take anything out of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, he never said, "Oh my God, you know, you can't put that in there." Uh, there. Um, you know, there's always some concern about represent, representing all that is FMU, and that's impossible. Right. Uh, yeah. 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 Um, I noticed that you also had some talking head interviews with Lee Ronaldo and Matt Groening. Yeah. Um, did you? Uh, there's not a yeah. There's not a ton of Matt Groening in there, but do you go meet up with him? I or I knew he was him? an FMU fan, mm-hmm. and um, I eventually got a hold of him, and he was just fantastic. I flew out and. Um, went out to his very cool headquarters and, um, and he nailed it. You know, I mean, in some ways you, what, what do you want from him? He's not going to tell you personal, any personal information about the station. You want someone at the beginning of a film to vouch for the subject so right. that people are going to go, Oh, I like Matt Groening. I, I love the Simpsons and this guy loves this place. Okay. I'm listening a little more carefully. And ultimately that's why you have people like that in there. You know, Lee, Lee could speak a little more personally to yeah, FMU. He's a New York guy. Yeah. Cause he's a New York guy. He played there. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, they were, uh, I was very grateful to both of them. You know, there were a lot of people, Laurie Anderson was supposed to be in the film and, um, and unfortunately, you know, my attempts to interviewer happened just as, as Lou was passing and that was really unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, there's, uh, Cindy Sherman had, I spoke to her about being in the film and that sort of almost happened. Um, is she a big listener? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. And I, I was just that. like, you know, 
Um, you know, I would have loved, loved that. Oh, yeah. 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 Um, so there's, uh, you know, you just keep trying. And, and in some ways, um, you know, I would say a documentary, it really is a collaboration between yourself and the subjects. Mm-hmm. And if someone never wants to talk to you, um, if someone, you know, is when you're around, it just stops expressing themselves. Um, then, you know, at the end of the day, their, their role gets more and more diminished. Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't speak to the gender issues that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. I think I had a lot of great women that spoke to me. Certainly Sue Braun is one of my favorite people at FMU and one of my, you know, just person I love to listen to. I, it's funny. I don't even love her programming as much as I just love to listen to her be a crank on the radio. It just makes Mm -hmm. me feel not so alone in the world. (laughs) So, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, um, it's something where you feel like if you either had more time or were not going to focus as much on Ken, you could, you would have, it's just a decision you made. Yeah. I mean, I will tell you in the last two weeks of editing, after a number of screenings, I cut out, 30 minutes of, oh, of the film uh-huh. in those 30 minutes, probably about 20 of them are just portraits of DJs. You know, we go home with Dwayne or we go home with Faye who does a great show on Sunday nights called hello children. One of my favorites. And, uh, you know, we go home with Fabio, uh, who's got an amazing record collection is funny. And, um, is he the guy with the, with the fur coat? Is that Fabio? No, that's uh, Kenny G. Kenny G. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Who's uh, always getting in trouble. <laughs> um, and uh, so, yeah, it's, uh, I sometimes go back and go, oh, I should have left that in. You know, the filmmaker in me was like, I just want this to move. Um, and that's, that's a hard thing when you, you have this sense of responsibility to, to, to representing people and their mm-hmm. lives. Um, you know, journalism is no different. Um, you are, you're, cutting, you're cutting out things that you see and who people you decide who you're going to talk to and every moment is a decision as an editorial decision Mm -hmm. so i'm just you know sometimes i have these moments of disappointment i'm very proud of the film i think the film captures the spirit of what this place is Mm -hmm. um does it it doesn't tell um it certainly can't and doesn't tell uh, all the kinds of stories that are there yeah um so yeah um was there because like yeah like if I was gonna think about approaching the idea of doing a documentary about a radio station maybe it is more like doing something about like a high school or something or like what are some right. other models of like how to think of how did you thought about approaching the whole project I mean I was there I, anything I, like yeah. you're like looking at like oh like the up like Michael Apted or something or like no you know, you know I was I was um, being very foolish about it um, you know as someone who had been in post production for so long. You first thing you're um, you're not disciplined uh, about when and who you shoot. Um, shooting, particularly if it's not very expensive for you to do, can be addictive. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a thrill. You're gonna go out. There's a sense of completion at the end of every day, regardless of sort of what happened. Um, and uh, you're out trying to catch magic. And sometimes you feel like you caught magic and you didn't at all. And sometimes you just feel like, okay, I don't know what my thing is about. I'm just going to keep going. Mm-hmm. I'm going to just, I, I need more DJs. I need to talk to more of them. 
um, well, the more you talk to them, the less you're talking about anything. They all are, you know, they, they sort of talk in chorus a little bit, and you get some of that in the film. Um, but some of them just, you know, they, they don't care about, you know, I mean, they care, but they're, they're not going to passionately talk about the problems that you've decided are the things that m- make this resonate for you, the mm-hmm. questions you're trying to answer as a filmmaker. So, yeah, going back to, like, if you're going to make a documentary about your high school, well, first got to choose a class. Which class mm-hmm. are you going to focus on? Yeah. You know, and then within that class, who are those people? Like, think of all the different stories that are going on in your high school class, a graduating class. Is it, you know, is it the prom queen? Is it the uh, artist that's, you know, building their own, you know, treehouse magical life? You know, is it, uh, you know, what are you trying to say? And ultimately, you're like, well, I really want to talk about, you know, people on the edge of. Tomorrow, you know what the of adulthood or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. If those people don't speak to those themes, you better be cutting them mm-hmm. because they just muddy your theme. Your, and, yeah, you know, muddy your story. So, uh, you know, one of the women said to me, "The men here are crazy." <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, "Oh, that must be why <laughs> most of them are making the cut." Right. Yeah, there's so. a lot of like traditionally it is a field that has a lot of antisocial people and mm. yeah a lot of outliers. Oh, um, I wrote something about an ant invasion. I, I had mm-hmm. kind of forgotten about seeing that the yeah. first time through when I was watching it today. I'm like, is that like a recurring just that building? Every year they get a, they have an ant invasion. Massive ant invasion. I they, can relate to that. Yeah, they have they have uh, you know animals in the. In the you know in the roof, the whole yeah. back of the building was fall was about to fall off recently that they had to um, shore up. Did um, they own the building? Yes, they that's got, what I thought. Yeah. They, so there was a reference to like there's a tenant downstairs that, during that the recession lost. that they lost, and um, to bring it up to date, they have a performance space down there now. Yes, is what I was seeing. So um, uh, FMU is in. They used to be in Uppsala. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, in East Orange in, at Uppsala College. That right, when the were, entire campus had gone into bankruptcy and they were yeah. like the only functioning building with they like were, electricity. They were on an abandoned <laughs> college campus during a very bleak economic time. <laughs> People would come onto the campus at night and, and just squat and like, squat uh, and fire off assault rifles. Yeah. And um, but uh, they Ken was smart enough to say, okay, we need to move to a new space, and they eventually bought a building. Um, so they made a home in Jersey City before Jersey City became, you know, a, a, a new version of Brooklyn, um, mm-hmm. which it's slowly becoming and is big, you know, it's expensive. And so they were very lucky. Um, and um, but uh, they did uh, they had a tenant on the bottom floor when I was shooting there and then the recession, um, you know, killed that business and they went away. Uh, and they, instead of just trying, again, this is a Ken thing, instead of, oh, we need to find something to get that income coming back in to help, you know, support us, he was like, let's just make a performance space instead. Uh, <laughs> All the money's in performance. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, they, it's a limit, you yeah, know, yeah. I don't think it's... It's, it's I, their connections yeah. that make sense, that yeah. people would trust them to curate something like that. Right. Yeah. And they, they, uh, they're on Montgomery Street, so they named it Monty Hall. Um, uh, named after the uh, game show host, um, and um, it's a you know it's an amazing space and an, an amazing addition. And I you know I, I can 
just and that whole station continues to grow and do amazing things. Mm-hmm. So yeah. And you were saying so you actually debuted it uh, at the end of two thousand fourteen. At Doc NYC. Doc yeah. NYC. And then you did a few festivals and I did a lot. You know, we were uh, we uh, did some amazing festivals. I was in Europe quite a bit. I was at um, Rotterdam, um, so that was a big deal. And we, um, but and then we did a nice theatrical run, um, uh, mostly on the east side of the country and a little bit abroad. But we were nine days in Manhattan at the IFC Center, which was a thrill. I'm certainly helped that FMU is sort of like a home cultural institution, um, but. Uh, it, in many ways, the film had a—I can say financially—but it it, it, <clears throat> it had a, as big a life as I I had I could have hoped. Yeah, you know? and now it's available on the streaming services Netflix, like Netflix and Sundance Now and yeah. iTunes and Amazon, Amazon. and uh, Canopy. I'll give a shout out to Canopy because that's Canopy. how I I found it. Uh, yeah. My girlfriend found it at Canopy. If you're at least a LAPL member, you can watch documentaries on there for awesome. free. Um, and what, yeah, like what's what's the most extreme feedback you've gotten from anyone who is either in it or just from fans? Um, you know, they're positive or negative. Yeah, yeah, no, there's, 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 I, I get a lot of, oh my God, I can now explain this place to people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of DJs come to me and thank God now I can explain try to explain this to my parents you know 50 year old like you know djs who are like now i can finally explain this to my parents um so it's that that's really great um i think every once in a while someone's like um you know i feel like you really didn't cover this aspect of the of the station or even cover me in this you Mm. know and some of that you'd done interviews with or? some people I did interviews with some people that felt very reluctant during the process. And then kind of, I was like, well, they don't seem really like interested in the, um, you know, it is a collaboration. Um, you know, people can be very careful, you know, when you're being filmed and if that trust hasn't been built, um, or if that trust never can be built, then it just is what it is. Right. With and, the paranoid people. And yeah. Whatnot, yeah. So to a certain extent, um, that, you know, that, that as a filmmaker, you you on one hand you have to be a, a little bit immune to that, um, but as a human being, you know that you know if someone spends their life working on something, and someone comes along to document some part of that, and they're not representative. There's there's going to be disappointment, mm-hmm. and I um, you know at the end of making this film, for all the money I raised during Kickstarter, I. I spent a lot of money and I spent a lot of time, time yeah. and years and years away from my family, you know, years away from my daughter, you know, years away from whatever the next project was going to be. Um, and certainly years away from <laughs> making money. Um, <laughs> did so, you have to put off work to actually, did oh, you, yeah, put, you put stop, up paying work? Point, you put I, off all paying work? Uh, near, at the, there was the last year where I mm-hmm. finished the film and I had raised this money in Kickstarter. I was like, okay, great. I, you know, I'm a great editor. I will just sit down and edit this myself because, right. That's hey, your background. You're an editor. Yeah. yeah, I'm an editor. So, and that was a disaster. Um, <laughs> Did you have to bring in someone to help? I ultimately brought in a guy who we had worked with for years together mm-hmm. and that was great. It just, I required having someone else in the room to have a conversation with um, someone mm-hmm. who could be like, um, oh, that's boring. 
you yeah. know, you're or, so close to it at this point, right? Yeah. Well, and I'm also looking at my own footage, an editor yeah. who shot a film. So imagine what that looks like. Yeah. Uh, you know, by the end of shooting, I was quite proud of some of the stuff that I shot. It looks quite beautiful. Um, but when you're in the cut trying to make decisions, you can't just go like, that doesn't matter. It, 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 it you get hung up on your own, on your own, f- what feel like failings. So, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, so working with someone that you're already used to working with yeah. was very helpful. Um, anyone, did anyone else come in to give you feedback in, while you're putting the whole thing together? You know, I have a process just from making other films of having screenings um, with people that I know are going to give me hard and constructive feedback. Mm-hmm. Um, so some private uh, stuff. Yeah. yeah, we would just sit down and say, okay, I'm going to bring a dozen people. And actually not as eight is, a, I think, tops. You know, at mm-hmm. some point it's just a noise. And, mm-hmm. um, and you just... A little market research. Yeah, yeah. Of, yeah. but you, you look, you want to... There's, 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 in, in any film, particularly in a documentary, you're like, is there anything that is confusing? That's number one. You want to just clear that out. And sometimes mm-hmm. you have no... You can't see it. Yeah. There's no way you can see it. And at some point you're like, oh, yeah, I need to make that less confusing. Is there any, you know... Are there places where you're just like, I am so bored out of my mind? You want to know that, mm-hmm. you know? Um, you're going to try to get a you know, diverse enough group where you're like, oh, that person loved that moment, so mm-hmm. that stays in. Um, yeah. but, it, but you end up cutting half an hour kind of near the time you had to submit it. For, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so. Yeah. Um, what uh, You said you're out here doing other kind of business-related things. Do you have any other projects that you can talk about? Uh, I... Uh, I have been doing a lot of editing since uh, since then. I just uh, worked with a director by the name of Dan Cloris on a 20-hour documentary on the history of basketball that will be on ESPN in uh, 2018. Okay. Um, and uh, I am turning a lot of my energy uh, towards screenwriting until the next documentary uh, takes a hold of me and um, squeezes every last dime out of my wallet. Yeah, I guess screenwriting has got to be a completely different uh, skill set because you're like, you can just fantasize whatever you want. And it's probably like you don't have to sit around and like collect uh, all these hours of footage and everything. Sure. Yeah, definitely. It's a, de- it's a very different, you know, obviously, um, you know, a screenplay isn't a finished thing. It's an yeah. inspirational document. It's a thing where you're hoping that other groups of people will yeah. rally around you and we will go off to to make something together. Is it about a madman visionary? I <laughs> see <laughs> the one through line. It actually is. It, I, I, it is a little bit about a crackpot or a visionary. Yeah. yeah. It's, uh, that is, uh, you know, I, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm inspired by people um, that are trying to do things that, A, that aren't necessarily going to reward them in the traditional ways. And then they're a reminder of, you know, of of things that are outside of all of this noise. You know, like, hey, someone built a place, a community where people come and there's a sense of, of there's a, fa- it's a family. Mm-hmm. FMU is a family of, of people that feel like f- they need a family. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, they, and they have a place where they can share their sensibilities and their music with, a very diverse, you know, people all over the world, right. and um, and they're not. No one's gonna get rich off of it. If yeah. anything, everyone's just gonna lose money. Yeah, there's something like utopian about the idea of it. 
and yeah. if not actually in the practice i don't i don't know if i would say it's a utopia in practice but it feels like a utopia in theory i think it's a practical utopia okay in a sense that and that it's it's like we aren't going to get bogged down by idealistic process we're going to focus on these core couple of core things and 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 within that, we within these parameters, we're going to be incredibly free in a way that you will not find anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Great, um, Tim. Thanks so much for coming over here and talking to us about sex and broadcast. Thank you, George. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for listening. You can find more episodes of Subdoc, show notes, updates, and more at subdocpodcast.com. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Subdoc Podcast. If you have comments, corrections, or want to suggest a documentary, email us at subdocpodcast at gmail.com. The show is listener-supported. You can donate to the show at patreon.com slash subdocpodcast. If you can't donate financially, please subscribe, comment, or tell a friend about Subdoc. We'd like to thank Documentary News for their ongoing support. Subdoc is produced by Will Scoble. Our theme music is by David Siegel. 